So our reading this evening is taken from John 19. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, John 19, verses 16 to 37. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. <coughs> Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write to the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be the special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they they will look on the one they have pierced. Good evening. It's good to see you all. I can see you without these, but I can't see that without these, so you'll look a bit fuzzy to me now. Um, I hope this isn't true, but for some of you this might be the bit where you turn off and think it's a sermon, time to relax. Uh, So just to make sure you don't, I've got some riddles for you to solve. So uh, riddles need you to think, not just what's the obvious things, but think a bit more laterally, use some ingenuity, see if you can work them out. So what is seen in the middle of March and April that can't be seen at the beginning or end of either month. I think this is the easiest one. Is that Luke? Letter R, brilliant. Well done. 
Second one might be a bit more difficult. A woman shoots her husband, then holds him underwater for five minutes. Next she hangs him, right after they enjoy a lovely dinner. Can you explain? I'm not going to ask how many men think their wives have felt like doing that, but can you explain what's going on? Something to do with photography. Fantastic. She took a picture and then developed it in a dark room. Uh, I have cities but no houses. I have mountains but no trees. I have water but no fish. What am I? Not quite. Any guesses? Keep laughing at me because I've got to take them up and down. I can't see people with that when I've got them on. can't see if anyone's waving at me or not. And they're new to me. I don't know what's going on. Any guesses? It's a map. It's a map. So why am I, why am I asking you to solve riddles? Well, actually, before I tell you that, I'm going to read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. John could have written something like that to describe what was going on on the cross. Quite straightforward, it says something about who Jesus is, what his death on the cross achieved, and what his relationship was with his people. But instead, John's description of Jesus' death on the crucifixion, I think, is a bit like a riddle. If you just look at the surface, you'll miss the things that John wants us to recognise. Because John's put clues in there for us to see this isn't just another criminal being crucified by the Romans. There's far more going on than might at first be apparent. So if you're paying attention, you'll see that there are clues that affirm the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus and the people of Jesus. If you don't pay attention, if you only look at the surface, you will see a poor homeless man being crucified, a convicted criminal, an enemy of the religious leaders, a blasphemer getting what he deserves. But John doesn't focus on what most of us probably would focus on. The nakedness of Jesus, his shame and humiliation. The physical pain experienced by Jesus, his body beaten, torn by the whipping, hanging from a cross, held up just by nails, suffering a slow and agonising death. Or the distress of his family and friends who were watching, seeing him unjustly executed. What many probably saw was the upstart wannabe religious leader defeated and finished. John pretty much covers all of that just in the first few verses of this passage. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Just three sentences describing the physical reality of what was happening. The bits we might have focused on more, and certainly people at the time probably did. 
Instead, John gives much more time to the clues that will take you deeper into what is actually happening on the cross, giving us information we need to solve the riddle. They called me King of the Jews. They shared my clothes between them and drew lots for them. My mother and disciples watched me die. I was thirsty and they gave me vinegar wine to drink. They did not break my bones. People watched on as I was pierced. Who am I? What is my mission? Who are my people? This is the riddle John sets for his readers. Because John wants to see, wants us to see these clues and focus on the spiritual significance of what is happening on the cross, not the physical reality. So we're going to go through the passage, look at each of those clues in turn, uh, and then try and answer those questions. And I hopefully we'll see that the identity of Jesus is revealed and affirmed. That the mission of Jesus is clarified and completed. The people of Jesus are identified and set apart. So if you're here and you're Christian, my hope is that as we look at this passage, you will be reassured about who Jesus is, who it is you've put your trust in. You'll be encouraged by the reminder of what he did for you on the cross and will know the joy that comes from being one of his people and all that means. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, have a slightly different hope. My hope is that as we look at this passage, you will see Jesus for who he really is, maybe for the first time. That you will experience the forgiveness made possible by the cross and leave here committed to being a follower of Jesus. So let's get into the clues. First clue is the sign on the cross, probably the most obvious one. Pilate had a sign attached to the cross written in three languages. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Less than one week earlier, actually that's what the Jews were proclaiming about Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. There they were shouting, pulling down the palm branches as he entered Jerusalem, shouting things like, blessed is the King of Israel. And the reference there that refers to the promised king who would come into Jerusalem seated on a donkey's colt. So the people had seen that Jesus was a king previously, but how things had changed. Jesus no longer looked like a triumphant king, ready to sit on his throne. What Pilate had written on the sign was loaded with political and messianic implications. I don't think that's what Pilate was thinking, though. He probably thought... He was using it to mock Jesus and mock the Jewish religious leaders, if not the Jewish people generally. We see when he dismisses their complaints, he wasn't really bothered about keeping them happy. But it is what Jesus had claimed and why the religious leaders wanted him executed. So maybe it was Pilate's way of saying, well, here's your so-called king. What good is he to you now? What's he going to do for you now? Quashing their political revolutionary ideas and asserting the authority of Rome. But for the Jewish leaders, they saw the messianic implications and they were unhappy for that sign state as it was. But despite their protests, the sign did stay. Unwittingly, Pilate was declaring the truth. Jesus didn't look like a king. The religious leaders rejected this claim. Pilate mocked Jesus with this title but the sign declared who Jesus is, King of the Jews. Massive irony. The Jews were waiting for a special king, the Messiah. Yet now he was there and they had conspired to have him crucified. Like I said, it's a, it's a riddle. You've got to look beyond the surface. If you look deeper again, we see that Jesus isn't just a king for the Jews. 
I don't think uh, anything that John wrote is just by accident or insignificant. The fact that he records for us the sign was written in three languages should make it clear to us that it was a declaration for all people, not just for the Jews. Jesus is not just king of the Jews, he's lord of all. King of the universe. He was the man being crucified who was the Messiah God had been promising. The one who would crush the serpent's head, bless the whole world, be a better King David and draw people to himself from every tribe, tongue and nation. The religious leaders should have known better but they didn't recognise him. In fact they rejected him and stood as his enemies. Straight into the clue two, sharing out of Jesus' clothes and drawing lots of soldiers crucified Jesus and then they were sharing his clothes between themselves. And they had to draw lots because they couldn't share them out equally. There was nothing unusual about this. It was an unusual perk, but it was one of the perks of their job. But again, just look at the irony. At the start of John's Gospel, he tells us Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Through him all things were made. Made Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the one who had given those soldiers everything they had, even their very lives. And yet here they were, sharing out the only earthly possessions Jesus had. They clearly didn't understand who he was, what was happening, and what was going on. But just because lots of people present did not understand what was going on, we should not think it was all a tragic accident. In verse 24, we're told what soldiers were doing happened that scripture might be fulfilled. And that's a phrase John uses a few times during the passage. And it's a bit like a hyperlink you might find on a website. Um, so if you're looking at a web page, there might be words that are a different colour, or there might be a picture or a button. If you click on it, it instantly takes you, well, if you've got good broadband connection, instantly takes you to another page. But it's linked to the first one. And these kind of phrases, when they're in the Bible, are a little bit like a hyperlink. It should take us immediately to another section in the Bible that's linked to what we've just read. Uh, and so the hyperlink, so to speak, in this bit about the soldiers casting lots for his clothes takes us to Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, the king, the Messiah would descend from. Read Psalm 22 when you go home. It's a great psalm to, be, to read, to reflect on, on Good Friday. Because it could just easily be, and I, obviously as a Christian I think it's God's word, it is a description of Jesus on the cross. It was true about David at the time, and he was writing from his personal experience, but it was also the Holy Spirit inspiring him to point us to what was going to happen to Jesus. The suffering king. The Messiah who would come would be a king who would suffer. Like I said, these links that scripture will be fulfilled should give us great confidence. Jesus being on the cross was not an accident. God was not taken by surprise. It was his plan from the very beginning. And so we see that God's plan always was that the promised king would be a king who would suffer. And then we're told that uh, some of Jesus' family are present and some of his followers He saw uh, his mother Mary was there, some other women who were followers, and one of the twelve disciples, John. I think, again, 
John's writing this so that we can be reminded that Jesus is the son of Mary. That Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of the son of God. The virgin who gave birth to God incarnate in the town of Bethlehem. Pointing again, Jesus is from the line of David. Taken back to the Christmas story, that connection between Christmas and Easter. Reminding us that Jesus is fully God and fully human. As John, again at the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Mary being there should remind us of all those things. Then there are the other women. Those who had followed Jesus, gone wherever he went, travelled with him. And even now they were there with him despite the pain and the risk. They left behind everything to follow Jesus and would follow him to the very end. And when we compare them to the Romans and the religious leaders, there's a stark contrast. They're the ones who saw Jesus for who he really is. They're the ones who trusted him fully. They knew he was special and believed he was the promised Messiah. And I'm always struck when when I read the Bible, how God names his people. You think God of the whole universe, we might feel very insignificant, but God knows each of us by name. Uh, And often when uh, maybe you're in a home group or Bible study and you're reading a passage and there's the long genealogy and nobody wants to read it because the names are awkward and we think, well, skip that. But don't skip it. Those people are all known and named by God because they're his people. And if you're one of God's people, your name is in the book of life because God knows you by name. Those women who were there are known, named by God and loved by him. And as I said, John was there too, a disciple chosen and called by Jesus. And he obviously responded to that call. Been following around for three years, listening to Jesus, watching the things he did, learning from him and becoming increasingly like him. Jesus was preparing him to be one of the leaders who would disciple others and continue his mission. And even in his short passage, we see the intimacy there between Jesus and his disciples. John often referred to himself as the disciple whom he loved. He knew absolutely that Jesus loved him. And then there's a bit where John basically says, can you look after Mary? He says, this is your mother, this is your son. And again, it might seem a bit odd. Actually, if you know anything about Mary and Jesus and his family, there were other sons already that Mary had. Why would he ask John to become her son and take care of her? And again, it's nothing is insignificant. I think John is helping us see that Jesus is creating a new family. Those who are spiritually God's people form a spiritual family. And then we had the Jesus being thirsty and being given vinegar wine to drink. John, in his gospel, I think probably, I found two, there are probably more elsewhere, but John definitely recorded two significant times when Jesus referred to himself as a source of living water. That he could provide water for those who are thirsty in the spiritual sense. So when he was with the woman at the well, another time speaking at the festival. Jesus referred to himself as the spring of water welling up to eternal life. You hear he's on the cross, the one who's the source of living water, saying he's thirsty. And he's given a drink of vinegar wine. Probably just because that's what the soldiers were drinking, what was available. But the one who offers water as the very source of life is given probably the most unpleasant drink you could imagine. Has anyone ever drunk vinegar wine? I wouldn't recommend it. Um, just again, just the irony in that. 
And it might just seem an aside, but nothing is insignificant in what John is writing. There are some more biblical hyperlinks. Uh, So we're taken to Psalm 22 again, uh, verse 15 in particular, and also to Psalm 69, verses 3 and 21. Again, pointing forward to the suffering king, uh, being thirsty and being given vinegar for his thirst. And we've already looked at or considered Psalm 22. Again, encourage you to read it. A psalm about the suffering king, linking Jesus to the messianic promises. Uh, Psalm 69, unsurprisingly, is very similar. Another psalm of David about the suffering of the king. And there's much in there that is just clearly describing the crucifixion of Jesus. Even the use of a hyssop branch to give Jesus the drink is not insignificant. You have to go right back to Exodus, to the Passover, and see that when God gave the Jews instructions for what they were to do, they were to use a hyssop branch to paint the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Uh, And then we have the clue, the next clue in there, where they did not break his bones, and they looked on the one they had pierced. I think it's really important for us as Christians to know that Jesus did die. Um, Kind of some of you know, the work I do, schools work. When we go into schools, when we look at the resurrection, people come up with all kinds of theories one of the ones that's been put around, Jesus didn't really die. We can see from the evidence he really did die. Uh, the Romans crucified people often, and they were very good at it. Uh, they didn't make mistakes. And we're, we're told here about the method they would use to speed up death of breaking legs, and they didn't need to do that with Jesus. They would do that because people, when you're crucified, you die from asphyxiation. You basically suffocate yourself, your lungs, the weight of all your other organs, you suffocate. And it could take days. So to speed it up, they would break legs and then it would all happen much quicker. But he didn't need to do that for Jesus. And he also, by piercing his side with a spear, uh, the blood and water came out confirming he was dead. So we know he was dead. And again, it's not insignificant. He has to be dead for his sacrifice to be effective and for the resurrection to be real. Jesus had to have been dead. And there are some more hyperlinks, uh, things that had to happen so that scripture will be fulfilled. So the first one about no bones being broken, uh, references in Exodus, Numbers and Psalm 34. They're all references to the Passover lamb. They're all talking about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be unblemished. It couldn't have any broken bones. And so John wants to see the truth, again, that he recorded right at the start of his gospel, what John the Baptist had declared. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he uses the references linking Jesus to the Passover Lamb. Here was the Lamb of God. Come to do what the first Passover Lamb had only been pointing to. The Passover Lamb represented the substitutionary sacrifice God had given to his people to rescue them from Egypt. If they sacrificed an unblemished lamb in place of their first son, they would be spared. So here's Jesus on the cross, the only perfect man, the unblemished perfect one. On the cross, not for his own sin, but for the sin of others. 
the substitute dying in our place, a death that redeems and rescues God's people. Uh, the they watched looked on the one they pierced is a link to Zechariah twelve ten. God promising a time when the Spirit of God will be poured out and bring grace. It began to God's people and they would recognise what was being done to Jesus and mourn. Mourn for their sin and for the evil that led people to kill the Messiah. And again, the clues there, this is God speaking in the first person. Jesus is God fulfilling this promise. His death secured the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death is all part of God's plan. And the death was not the end, there was more to follow. The Holy Spirit was to be poured out and continue the work of Jesus. So a number of clues. Uh, you might be feeling a little bit like you're in an episode of Sherlock, suddenly have bombarded you with all these clues, giving you all the ways they reveal different types of information. Uh, but John didn't put the clues in the account of the crucifixion just to test how good a detective you are and to make sure you're paying attention. He put them there so we can put those pieces together and understand some things about Jesus. We can understand what his identity is, what his mission was, and who his people are. So in the riddle, we had some questions. And the first question was, who am I? How would you answer that question? If someone said to you, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? So you might say, well, he was... Son of God. If you're a Christian, you might believe that. You might say, well, I think he was a good religious teacher. He seemed to be a miracle worker. A good man. Or maybe you might even say he was made up. We don't even know he was real. But when we look at the clues John has given us, there are many ways we can answer that. We could use Son of God. Or God incarnate. God in human form. The Messiah. The promised King. The Lord. The suffering King. The Lamb of God. The Saviour. So a question for you, have you recognised who Jesus is? He's not just a good man or religious teacher. He's not just a miracle worker, he is God himself. Come to earth to be the perfect sacrifice in our place, to reveal himself as Lord, King and Saviour. His identity is revealed and affirmed at the cross. This is why Paul could write Philippians 2, 5-11. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we also see in that passage what the right response is when we recognise who Jesus is. Bow the knee, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and confess he is Lord. So if you're not a Christian, God requires that of you. Look at Jesus, see who he is. And acknowledge him and submit to his authority. The second question that was posed was, what was my mission? Why did God come to earth as a human being? 
And looking back at the passage in John, you could look at verses 16 to 18 and easily think, well, if this is the promised Messiah, surely he's failed. Surely he's been defeated and whatever mission he'd come to do was left incomplete. And I would say that's probably what the religious leaders thought and probably most of the Jews who were there. They'd seen something special in Jesus, but the Messiah they were expecting would re-establish Israel, not suffer humiliation by being publicly executed by crucifixion. Jesus really did not fulfil their expectations of the Messiah. But again, John's given us the clues. Uh, even in his identity, we saw something of his mission, the Lamb of God. His identity and mission are closely tied to that first Passover. That was just pointing forward to something greater. Jesus was the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to redeem his people and rescue them. But rescue them from what? They're not in slavery in Egypt. They were under Roman rule, but he didn't liberate them from the Roman Empire. We know that Jesus came to save his people from sin and judgment. Just quick, just make sure you're awake, because I'm aware sin isn't a word that's used very often in our culture, and in fact many people think we shouldn't use it at all because it's judgmental. But what is sin? Hands up if you've ever done anything wrong, broken any rule whatsoever. Hopefully that's everyone. If you haven't got your hand up, you're lying, so that you've just broken another rule. <laughs> what happens if you if you break the rules at home? Put somebody on the spot. What happens? Who do you get in trouble with at home if you break the rules? My mum and dad are visiting, so I've got to be behaving this weekend because your parents are in charge in the home. What about in school? If you break the rules, you get in trouble with the teachers, maybe even if it's really serious with the head teacher. If you stay on the streets and you break the rules, you get in trouble with the police. We, we recognise there is authority, there are rules, and when we break those rules, if we're caught... If we break the rules, we know there should be a punishment. So actually, as, as much as we dislike sin and being told we're sinners, we think there is this concept of breaking rules and judgment and justice. Well, if God is the creator of all things and in charge of all things, surely the same applies when we break his rules, that there should be judgment and punishment. So Jesus' mission is clarified in what John has shared. He's come to save people from sin and judgment. But did he complete it? Well, we, John recorded for us that Jesus declared, it is finished or it is accomplished. The work was done. Sin and death were defeated and the way was open for people to be reconciled to God. What looked like defeat was in fact the greatest victory ever. We could say the crucifixion was actually the coronation of Jesus the King. And the cross was his throne. His mission was complete. As we read in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So where do you stand before God? If you're not trusting in Jesus, my question for you is, are you really relying on your own goodness? 
Is that really going to be enough to satisfy God? Well, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we don't need to rely on our own goodness. We can rely on Jesus and accept that free offer of forgiveness, redemption and adoption. So if you haven't done it already, you need to acknowledge who Jesus is and what he's done for us and to put your trust in him. And the third question was, who are my people? Who are these people that Jesus came to save? Well, we saw in the clues there were two types of people at the crucifixion. Those who rejected Jesus, mocked him and played a role in his crucifixion. And then there were those who saw Jesus for who he really is. Those who gave up everything to follow him. Those who loved him. These were people Jesus had chosen. They responded to his call and said yes to following him, no matter what the cost. And we saw in dialogue that Jesus was creating a new family. Mary did have other sons, but Jesus was placing this new spiritual relationship above blood relationships. Creating a new family, what we call the church. So Jesus' people are those who hear his voice and say yes to following him. Becoming part of God's family, the church. And we know that Jesus loves his people and shows them compassion. And so the people of Jesus at the cross are identified. And again, we can compare them to the religious leaders, those who thought they were God's people. Yet they rejected Jesus. They had him crucified. We even see they're more concerned with Sabbath rules than the murder of an innocent man. They had no inclination at all that they were killing the very Messiah they were waiting for. What they were doing set them squarely against God as his enemies. And if you want to find out a bit more what it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God, I would recommend reading through the book of Revelation. It's where really richness there about what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. But also in the book of Revelation, God's people are referred to as the Bride of the Lamb. And as Jesus' people, we're being prepared for the day when he will come back and be with him in eternal glory. A time is coming when all those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour will share his glory, share his inheritance, and will no longer know sin or death or suffering or pain. Jesus calls people to himself. Those who are his say yes. Jesus calls his people into a new family and they love one another. Jesus prepares his people for eternity and they wait with a certain hope for the time when they will see him face to face. So the people of Jesus are a people who are set apart as his. So when we look at the cross, if we take the time to look beyond the physical realities, the things that are just obvious, we see things that are of infinite and eternal value. We see the identity of Jesus revealed and affirmed. The mission of Jesus clarified and completed. The people of Jesus identified and set apart. What about you? Where do you fit into all of this? Have you heard God's voice today? Do you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God can hold out to you forgiveness and mercy. He wants you to trust in Jesus so you can become one of his family. But you need to know if you turn away, then one day you will face Jesus as judge, not as saviour. Jesus died 
for you so you can be right with God and escape the judgment of God. So if that's where you are, I would really encourage you to pray with someone after the service and say yes to Jesus. But if you are here and you are already one of God's people, you can be confident that when we look at the cross, we know who Jesus is and what he's done. We can rejoice that Jesus went to the cross in our place and for our salvation. The work of Jesus is complete and sufficient. We do not need to add anything. It is finished.